everyone. Thanks for listening to Episode 7 of the Stick to Syracuse podcast. My name is Brent Dax. However you got here today, we really do appreciate that. You can find the link on Syracuse.com or through social media. But just a reminder, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. We have two guests for you today on the Stick to Syracuse podcast. One is Daniel Baldwin, one of the Baldwin brothers. What is a known actor doing in Syracuse, New York, on Sports Talk Radio Monday through Friday? We'll find out why, how things are going with the Carol M. Baldwin Foundation, and so much more. You won't want to miss that colorful conversation with Daniel Baldwin coming up. We're also going to hear an interview that Kathleen Mason recorded with Curtis Tallbucks McDowell for the sound scene. Curtis, a local hip-hop artist, has since passed away since we recorded this interview. We decided to run it in its entirety here on Episode 7 of the Stick to Syracuse podcast to honor Curtis's memory. You'll hear him discuss his love for hip-hop, the plans that he had, including opening a local restaurant with his mother and his role as a mentor in Central New York. That's coming up a little bit later on here on the Stick to Syracuse podcast. But first, let's listen to my conversation with Daniel Baldwin after Just Joe gets it going. Ah, the rather unique way of picking games from Daniel Baldwin, the host of the Daniel Baldwin Show on ESPN Radio in Syracuse. You may know Baldwin as one of the famous Baldwin brothers. He's the second oldest for the record. Star of television and film, that guy from Celebrity Rehab, or perhaps an avid spokesman for the Carol M. Baldwin Foundation, or perhaps a local advocate for addicts. I spoke to Baldwin about all that and more. Take a listen to our colorful conversation here. So, Daniel, I want to ask you a question that I get asked a lot because we work together at ESPN Radio. Right. What is Daniel Baldwin doing in Syracuse, doing a sports talk radio show? Well, there's a few things uh, involved in that. First of all, we got all of our acting ability from my mother. We rent these houses on Scanning Atlas Lake the first two weeks of August. Alec, Billy, Stephen, and I. And my sisters, Jane and Beth, live here. And my mom. So mom gets Robin two years ago, and she's holding her hand, and she's rubbing her hand on the patio. Robin's your wife. My my wife, Robin. We're going to leave. I've I've driven across from Malibu with both dogs, the kids, the whole bit. And so mom very dramatically says, you know, 
I really wish you would spend more time with me now. <laughs> and chokes up and Robin's almost in tears. So we're now driving home and we're in Iowa. You know, we're, in the, we're halfway. And Robin turns around and looks at me and she says, you know, I really think we should spend more time with your mother now. And I looked at her and I said, great, babe, you can come out for the whole summer, come out for the holidays, whatever you want to do. No, I think we should move there and see your mother all the time. She's going to be 90 this year. And I looked at my wife and I said, honey, you're a nice little Jewish girl from Boca Raton. Then you moved to Malibu with me. I said, you have no idea what you're talking about there. I said, the snow can come up to your neck. <laughs> I said, now I'm from up there in the island and I'm used to it. And I love Syracuse. I love the mentality up here. I said, I'm not sure you would cut it in Syracuse. My wife's a little bit of a princess. And so I want to live by your mother, Daniel. And, wow. I, and listen, I learned a long time ago from failures in my life, relationship-wise, I say yes, ma'am, to most of it, because I really don't care. She's happy, I'm happy. So we loaded up the house. We sold the house in California in three weeks. We loaded up the pods. We sent the pods out. You have 11 days to get to your place. We got out here in three, drove back. We had eight days to find a house. And we bought a 200-year-old, 6,000-square-foot farmhouse up in Cleveland, New York, redid the entire thing. Um, and I got my children, they came out to visit me where I split custody with their mother and their mother's been struggling with some issues, uh, um, alcohol related stuff. So <clears throat> the court gave me emergency custody of the kids. Now I have to say, I did not expect to have my children full time. And as an actor, I travel sometimes six, seven weeks at a time. I didn't think that was fair to do that to my kids. And I happened to be with Lou Brego from driver's village up in the, he said, come up and see me. I'm in my friend Ed Levine's booth. And I went up there to see him in his, in his suite. And we started talking a little bit. He goes, wow, you know a lot about sports. I mean, you know, I, I guess they don't expect when you're an actor. Um, but I had had a, a pretty good amount of experience as an athlete myself and being around sports. And then I worked on Best Damn Sports Show, period, for a long time. So I got to the, the grind of doing sports, you know, media-wise. Uh, and I missed it. I like sports. Um, I don't know. You, you to me, listening. you're the only show I listen to. Well, and, thank you very much. Uh, well, I do because um, I get the facts that are involved, but I get an opinion on it, a sweat, and, and you're not afraid, you know. And, and so when something you you'll say, you know, and that's ridiculous to think that this guy, you know, and and I go, yeah, man. So, even if I don't agree with you, you know. And then there's the place for the infantes and the parks, which is a little more X's and O's and numbers and factual news kind of almost reporting. And then there's me, which is beyond you, you know. I mean, I, I remember. Ed saying to me, well, what do you mean it's going to be different? Ed Levine, the owner of the Galaxy. And I said, uh, well, listen to the first show. And the first show I ever did, the first segment I ever did, I was downstairs. It was a Tuesday I started on. So I'm up downstairs in my house on Monday night watching Monday Night Football, which I don't always watch. But I thought, maybe I better know a little more about what happens right. Monday night yeah. going into the show. So I'm watching the show, and my wife turns around and comes, looks at me and goes, are you going to come up to bed and watch that upstairs? I went, no, I got to concentrate. I got to watch this game. And she went, are you kidding me? I went, no, I'm not <laughs> kidding you. Job, right? I got to yeah. watch. I got to know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So I subscribe to this thing called Adore Me, which is, uh, you know, uh, negligees and, 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 and lingerie and stuff. Uh, tasteful but sexy stuff. And, and I get uh, like a preference box every three months. They know the things I checked off. And you go through this little uh, registration thing. And then they send you a little surprise box. And I leave it with the ribbon on it on the bed. So I'm now watching the game, and my phone's lighting up. 
And I look down and I see it's a text because it makes that tone for a text message. And I don't look at it. I'm watching it. You know, it's Patrick Josh packing a pocket and he, you know, and Tampa Bay's driving and they're going to win the game. And now the phone rings and I look and it's, it's a, a tone that only my wife has. So I pick up the phone. I go, what is it? She goes, did you look at your text messages? <laughs> and I said, no, why? <laughs> and so I opened the text messages up and there she is in the adore me outfit, lying in bed, very sexually posed. It was like a 1960s cartoon when the bird goes and takes off and just the feathers are there. I'm charging up the stairs. I round the corner. I get in the bedroom. I open the door and the game is on on the giant TV in the bedroom and she's wrapped up in pajamas and a burlap sack and in the comforter. And I, and I looked at her and I went, oh, I said, I go, what happened to the adore me yeah. outfit? She goes, I knew you'd come up if I sent you that picture. <laughs> and dogged me. I said, so how many people out there? And now you probably know. You could just watch the highlights, right? You know, I could have watched. I could have watched could the just red watch zone. The highlights, but but the, but the the point of it is that I went into the conversation with the audience of anyone that was listening. Call into. Do you get a hard time from your wife that you're watching too many sports? Yeah, and I thought it was a fun way to get into it. Now that's probably not ESPN Syracuse style, but I, that's who I am. But you, you know, had to I'm, stand out because you you mentioned it. We've got other uh, shows on the radio station itself and sports talk radio. I mean, everybody can grab a microphone and have an opinion, but how how do you stand out? So. What were some of the shows maybe you listened to that you appreciated? And one thing that I've really come to enjoy with you being with us is this relationship you have with the Dan Lebetard show. And the Lebetard show fits you like a glove because that's what they are. They're different. They're outside the box. Yeah. They almost make fun of sports in a way, but do it in, in a way that I want to be a part of that conversation. So how much influence did Sports Talk Radio have on you beforehand? Or did you just say, no, I'm doing it my way? Um. You know, I'd have to say from a radio standpoint, and, and if I had to emulate some of the things that I stole from, from what I learned, is my experience for years and years on Stern. So when Howard was just coming up in New York and he started to break out more and more, it was right when the Baldwin brothers started to break out too. So, you know, I was a guest on his show. I was a call-in person all the time. Alec, Billy, Stephen, and I, very, very, Stephen had his bachelor party on Stern. You know, what I mean, and I was at it was so we knew him that well. I sat right next to him at the at the premiere of Private Parts. You know, I've known Howard a long time, and what I appreciated and tried to do here was Paulie the Mole, uh, um, uh, uh, Larry Dickman was Joe Salzone, but I made characters. Forrest Gump was Neil, the kid that works. So he, you know, Stuttering John was literally a guy who worked in the mailroom that walked in that had a stutter. And one day Howard went, "Hey, come here, come here, come here. What's your name?" With the shaggy hair. You know, and, and he, he made these people who they were, and he made these characters, and I liked that. I liked that, that thing that you might go to, and, and, and I got a lot of resistance from the brass here about bringing guys in that they didn't think were of value. I said, you don't understand. They give me material. If they don't say anything, you know, having Forrest do the drawings that were so terrible from an NFL football. <laughs> Those were the awful. Other, they were awful. But, but I came to look forward to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, you, know, you make the show big enough. And there's a coffee book, a sports coffee book in that, of the terrible yeah. Forrest Gump drawings yeah. of the Monday Night Matchups. You know, it's, but, but yeah, my, my thing, my, you know, it's funny, podcasting, you're interviewing me. My thing for you is, so you've been doing this a long time, and you, you're, you know, the most popular, you know, your show and everything uh, at this place. I struggle with the, um, how do you turn this into more than just, like, I'm looking outside the box filming what goes on in there, maybe filming scenes outside, turning into a, is it a reality show? Is it a TV show? It's stuff that I do well 
that are in my in my forte and and getting people here interested like see you're the first person besides popping on your show and, and you know because i called into your That's show right. before i listened That's to right. your show yeah and and matt's had me on once but i think to myself i realize i'm not robert de niro i realize i'm not alec but i'm a tv and movie actor that's working on a small market radio station and i i wonder like why don't they take more advantage of the fact that i'm here at this place you better be careful because they'll do it now well if it's there's a, it's if, if it's a record. double-edged sword yeah where we're both making money doing it and there's ways to do that I can't imagine why you wouldn't do well, it. Well, and here's the thing. It's not just the show is one thing. Now with social media, you mentioned the video aspect of it. You feel like you, you constantly have to feed this content beast that's out there. For example, we were, I don't want to say lucky. That's not the right way to put it. But when the Frank Howard news broke last week, okay, Frank Howard's not playing for Syracuse basketball right. in the tournament. I'm on the air when that happened. So that's a way to get instant reaction to it. Most of the time when big news breaks like that, I'm not on the air. It used to be, okay, I've got to wait until this two-hour window or three-hour window, whatever it is, that I'm on the radio to discuss it. But now- you got to tweet about it. Exactly. Immediately. No matter what time it is, no matter what you're doing, you better feed that content beast out there because people have come to rely on it. It's it's not a burden of any sense. It's just just fascinating to me how you got to be ready to go at any time. The Carol Baldwin Foundation- the mark that it has made on Central New York, it has become one of the most recognized charitable brands here. When you hear that, you you automatically know what they do and what they do it for. But there's always work to be done. So what can you tell us about where the Carol Ann Baldwin Foundation is and the money they continue to raise and, and, and research and, and just kind of, you know, where we're at in terms of, of attacking breast cancer and, and, and the progress that has been made there? Well, I think the three things that that um, single this this foundation uh, from others out is um, a we have a nine oncologist board right here at Upstate Medical Center so we take these learned men and women and they take the application for the grant all of our money goes directly towards research grants we want to find a cure that's all we want to do we have two employees so we don't have the big overhead that some of these other giant ones of people drive Mercedes and taking vacations well we have two people that work for us, one downstate, one upstate. The one upstate, the director of the program is my sister Beth. Um, And we take that money and we write research grants and keep the money right here in upstate because we would like that cure to come from the upstate medical center right here in Syracuse. Um, We do things like um, uh, we show up when you're getting your chemo if you've had a mastectomy and we're in the operating room or in the the recovery room right after. We're holding your hand while you're getting the chemo because a lot of these women and, and some men but mostly women, are frightened. They're very frightened of, are, are they gonna die? Uh, 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 they're moms, you know, they're, they're wives, they're, they have jobs, they have family. Um, so we're here to help them through that. Uh, uh, the fund itself, uh, it's, it's, it's a tough market right now, you know, to get people to do things that are worthwhile. I think we're gonna, we're looking at now maybe branching out. I've always wondered and I've always said to my brothers, it's great to go to the underwater basket weaving contest and raise $20,000. And it's great to have a golf tournament and raise $80,000. And these are all wonderful things. But the last time I checked, the four of us were actors. I said, so why wouldn't we just make a movie about breast cancer and donate all the proceeds to the fund and we'd be done? So that was something that I talked about doing you know, for a decade now. I think my brothers are seeing how hard it is as we're approaching 60 you know, to keep this up, you know, keep this many balls up in here and do nine events. And ball, it's become difficult. 
it's resonating more now that we need to do either commercially and just sell our, ourselves out for a big donation from someone. So, you know, and these are the types of things when you find entrepreneurs that, that have given back to the community, like an Adam Weitzman and his wife who run that beautiful restaurant and donate the money. And he's done so many great things for this town. And maybe we do a shredding commercial. Maybe it's the four Baldwin brothers over at the shredding place. It works for him because he gets a tax write-off, and then he gets all four of us who have never done a commercial together. So we're kind of researching that market right now. We're looking at, you know, who's going to put up a million-plus dollars to, to have all four Baldwin brothers and do this, uh, and, and, and they get the write-off for it, too. So We could do a whole podcast on this, but I wanted to ask you about your relationship with your brothers. You know, we've heard them all on your radio show, Alex become a regular, it, it, as best as you can kind of put it in an eggshell. How would you describe your relationship with your brothers? I think like anything in life, it has an ebb and a flow. Um, when I was much younger, uh, really young, I was best friends with Alec because he was my older brother and I looked up to him, he was my hero. And then that kind of broke out by the time I was 11 or 12 and then Billy, who was the next below me, and Billy and I were more athletic together. So we had the longest running relationship. When my father got sick, I kind of took on the responsibility of the big brother slash father with Steven. But as time has gone through, um, surprisingly enough, the one that I had the most uh, butted heads with was Alec because we competed so much with each other. Um, and now we're probably closest, Alec and I. Um, I, I, I it required for me um, to get sober and stay sober because I had a, a drug and alcohol problem, which was well-documented. And Alec, who's also sober, I'll never forget... A, a really important moment in my sobriety and my relationship with my brother. And I said to him, you know, I hated you for a long time because I was struggling so much with drugs and alcohol and you lived right down the road from me and you just didn't even seem to care. You never spent any time with me. And he went, excuse me, you were using cocaine. I don't have people in my house around my kids and around my family or around me that are using drugs. I had to stay sober. You don't think it hurt me to watch you crashing and burning? He goes, it did. But I wasn't having anything to do with you. He goes, because I could have become you. And I never thought how strong he was to put his sobriety before even his relationship with his brother and to say, no, I can't be around him until he figures it out. Because it wasn't like I didn't figure it out at 15. I was 40 and I wasn't figuring it out. So uh, I learned a great lesson from that about his strength and admired him even more because of it. And now, because I've been able to stay sober for such a long time, um, you know, that door's been wide open and we're much closer now. And you've been able to take that sobriety and, and you counsel addicts. I, I've seen this in action. I've seen you on the phone with people. I've seen you, you know, counseling people, telling them what to do, where to go, what to do. And, you know, we're in, in this, uh, you know, world today. It happened in, in my family as well that, you know, specifically with opiate addiction, but it's all kinds of addictions. It's all kinds of things that we hear so much about in the news today. And it can be frustrating in, in, in some ways because you feel like you're, you're fighting this big tidal wave that's coming at you. But someone's got to fight it and somebody's got to help people. So what is that what inspires you to help people knowing what, what you went through? Is, is it personal or, or what, what's, what's your motivation? To that's do? part of it. But I think a bigger part is I subscribe to the 12-step um, program. And in the 12th step, it says, having had a spiritual awakening, we reach out to the addict or the alcoholic that still suffers. Um, and so... Part of this is for my own sobriety. A part of the big missing portion of my sobriety and past was I wasn't willing to be of service. So while I have friends who I'll say their name is Charlie or Robert, or and so you get the gist of where I'm going, 
and they don't want to talk about their sobriety. When everyone knows they struggled, they made all the headlines like I did, they got arrested, they had this happen. I don't, I don't look, do it that way. It tells me in that program that I'm supposed to be of service. So as much as I love everyone to think it's because I'm the nicest guy in the world and everything else, what drives me is my, my desire to stay sober. And so by putting myself out there, I'll be at Fulton High School on the 27th, and there could be 50 people, there could be 5,000 people, I don't know. But I'm going to get up there, I'm going to tell my story in the hopes that some kid sitting out there will say, wow, I don't want to end up doing what he did. I don't want to end up being there. I'm going to tell them the, the truth about how I did it, what happened, you know, my, my experience, strength, and hope. And, and I give that away freely. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the Stick to Syracuse podcast, my friend. Brother, I am always here for you. I'm a big fan. God bless you. Curtis Tallbucks McDowell combined two passions in life, working with troubled kids and writing and performing hip-hop music. McDowell, a father of three young children, died last weekend at the age of 35. McDowell graduated from Nottingham High School and worked as a student support specialist assigned to the Syracuse City School District. On March 1st, we recorded an interview with Curtis and Ian Low Rochelle. To honor Curtis's memory, we are going to run that interview in its entirety here on episode seven of the Stick to Syracuse podcast. He was only 17, a phrase heard too much. He was hanging on the curb too much. So one day some old karma came back. He was the first to get touched. To the emergency at first they rushed. His mother was hysterical. They took my baby boy. Everybody getting spiritual. Praying for a miracle. So Ian, How I met you, you <laughs> I want to say a year ago, was it? It's about right. It feels Give like so much longer. Um, and we collaborated on some hip hop storytellers and hopefully to collaborate on some more because I had the best time. And I'm so thrilled that the genre's really coming back um, here in yeah. this area and that people are really stirring the pot and trying to get it going like yourself and our other guest, Tallbucks. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk to you about um, where you've been, what's going on, what's happening with you. Well, I mean, I've been just trying to the hip-hop thing back because it was kind of an issue of just not support for it. The talent has always still been here. Like, I know Kurt's been working very hard for a long time, and a lot of times it's just, like, venues kind of get spooked of vibes associated with hip-hop. But there's a lot of very positive people in the community making positive music and uplifting music, and that's what we try to present with the hip-hop nights that we've been doing down at Funkin' Waffles. Right now, we've been doing them monthly on a Thursday. The next one will be March 28th, and Kurt will actually be performing at that one. Tall box. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So, Ian, you've got some new things other than that starting in the music world, so let me have it. Let's know what's going on. Um, I've been working on getting a booking agency up and running, trying to help some artists branch out of the area to get the Syracuse name known more regionally in the New England area and stuff. I have a lot of connections in like Maine and Vermont and venue connections in Massachusetts. So just try to get some people out of the area also too. So can you, um, can you tell us the name? Oh yeah. It's going to be called Little Rock Music Group, which is my last name is La Rochelle. So it's French and that's actually what that translates to. So I I kind of just wanted to represent like my family because as you know, I've been going with the brutal alias for so long and can you know, you my family is very important. What that is? People that are listening, what brutal is? Because you're still keeping that. Yeah. So it initially started out as like just screen printing. My wife is an artist and she had a bunch of different designs, but this kid I worked at a pizza shop with actually uh, Paladinos in Cicero. He had this little thing he'd always draw on the chalkboard. And I was like, hey, what's that, man? And it's like, 
oh, this is a brutal face. Like, it's just, a, you know, truth, like being honest type of thing. And, like, I kind of expanded on and rolled with it. And I was like, I got a bunch of musicians. And if we printed up shirts, like, I know a bunch of kids, and we could kind of get a movement rolling and kind of put a, an idea behind what everybody was doing. And it was kind of just like the art thing, to embrace your inner truth and just put it on the surface. So that's where that started. And I had done, let's see, what was the first event? At Sterling Stage, I did, like, Controlled Accident, where they always have these great music festivals up there, but it's kind of... Just like jam band folk, the same type of vibe. So I brought hip-hop artists out, like punk, you know, alternative rock, and still had, like, the jam scene, but tried to bring all of it together to show that, like, we have, like, a melting pot of music in Syracuse. Mm -hmm. It's not, like, genre-specific, so you can really do a lot. But, like, the Brutal by Design thing really helped in the hip-hop thing because, again, it helped put, like, a positive spin on what we are doing with the, like... Just the honesty movement and, like, trying to just represent what the artist was trying to say rather than put it on, like, all these other, I don't know, gimmicky type of things, right. I guess. Well, thank you. I've watched you, and you're a go-getter, and you're, you get it done. You're one of those people that are, like, near and dear to my heart because I'll say to you, can we, can we, like, even for this interview, do you think we can get tall bucks? And then two seconds later, he's in. Yeah. on my phone and so I mean that's the kind of thing that we need to get done we don't need people sitting on ideas we need ideas to get out there um, so we have tall bucks as well yes. and I think I, I just said to you before the, the microphone turned on I've seen you you've been in the hip hop showcases that mm-hmm. I've done with Ian and more and you have such a great stage presence you're really magnetic up there thank you um and so I really wanted to talk to you and have you on. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me, as far as music goes, where you've been and yeah. where you want to go? And then I'd like to ask you a little more, you know, personal so people can get to know you. Of course. Um, well, I've been a part of hip-hop all my life. Well, I mean, my family is really big on music, but hip-hop has been influenced by so many different genres. And my mother really liked funk and soul, and I, I was I was raised listening to that type of music. And when hip hop kind of came about, I, I felt these same influences, but they were kind of telling my story. So it was something that was captivating to me. So I really started uh, taking hip hop serious as an artist uh, towards the end of high school. Um, when I went away to Buff State, I met up with a couple cats, and uh, they were already involved in music. So I was just kind of getting my feet wet at that point. Uh, I don't know how good the music was at that point. I mean, I'm sure it was okay, but um, you gotta start somewhere. it got my juices flowing. And uh, we had a couple um, shows at the college that were really successful. So now I'm like, okay, maybe I can do this. Um, I came home and dropped a couple projects. Um, my first project I ever dropped was called Salt City Science. It had a cheap cover. Uh, poor sound quality, you know what I'm saying? But I was extremely proud of, of the right. piece of work that I put together. Um, and, and you then, produce everything on I your produce own, as well. Which um, is a big deal. It's different. I don't think a lot of people have that duality when it comes mm-hmm. to hip-hop. You know, you got Kanye, he kind of does that. Uh, J. Cole kind of does the same thing. Um, so I would love to be standing in an area with them when they talk about tall bucks. What do you feel is the difference between... I mean, why do you lean towards producing your own as opposed to having someone produce? Because I'm not exactly thrilled at the state of hip-hop now and the sound that it's producing. And um, I feel like actually producing my music and other artists in the town can actually bring hip-hop kind of back to where I fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. Um, not, I'm not trying to keep it old school. 
I want to bring the old to the new. Right. You know what I'm saying? Using newer sounds, but still having that soulful. Uh, right. I love sampling a lot. So really soulful samples mm -hmm. people can sing along with. Uh, familiar music that they already know. So, you know, they're kind of already attached to it. Sure. Um, I've gotten a great reception uh, from my production. And I've made some money, too. So this is something that... Uh, and you can't age out as a producer. You know, mm -hmm. I'm an artist. And eventually, you know, if you didn't make it, you kind of say, got to say, you know what? Let me try something else. Sure. So engineering and producing is something that I can always stand on because I always want to be a part of music. Um, I've released numerous projects, probably six, seven to date. Um, in 2014, I won a Sammy Award for an album that I produced called Angels and Demons. Um, that got received really well. Um, the year before, uh, Apollo 13 was an album that I released um, that did well too. And then a couple years ago, I actually performed at the Sammy Awards with the Brown Skin Band. I love Brown Skin. And um, that was I saw just... That. that. was 2017, that right? That was 2017. Yeah. Um, just an amazing group of people. Yeah, really. You really, know what I'm saying? Really talented group of people. Um, and then we had done, uh, last October, with Emmanuel Washington, and he has a, a group called the Frank White Experience that mm -hmm. does a full band, Notorious B.I.G. tribute. Mm -hmm. And I had called Kurt, and I was like, hey, I want to do this, like, expand on this. I want to do a Tupac versus Biggie and, like, kind of right. bring the whole thing. So he got together with Brown Skin Band, and, I mean... It's incredible. Real professional. I mean, yeah. I probably gave him 45 days notice, and he yeah. wasn't a Tupac right. fan coming into it. He's like, right, no. let me do Biggie. Yeah, like, <laughs> I know. Ian and I have gone round and round about it, but luckily we're on the same side. We're on the Tupac side. Mm -hmm. Sorry, folks. Sorry, folks. <laughs> well, see, and it was funny because <laughs> the music he makes, for me, is more of that Tupac kind of deeper, more thought-provoking, right. more poetic type of thing, whereas exactly. Biggie's one of the greatest streets. lyrical Straight streets. rappers ever, but it's, right. yeah, exactly. yeah. it's it's not as deep of a message, it's more kind of uh, glorifying the street mm -hmm. life rather than kind of explaining the consequences of. Yeah. Correct, and the thing that the thing that I do love also about hip-hop is that you've, um, Ian, you've brought in some spoken word too, and I love mm -hmm. that. And for people who don't know, spoken word is basically sort of like a, a lyrical poem, as hip-hop is, mm -hmm. but it's it's presented in a way that doesn't have any music behind it, or you could put music behind it. Mm -hmm. It's it's hard to explain, but it's very interesting to it's see. free-flowing. It's free-flowing. Yeah. Thank well, you. I think it's helpful for people that are, um, I guess, natural hip-hop listeners. A lot of people, my father, for example, huge music fan, loves it. Never could understand why I got into hip-hop. He's like, I can't really even catch what they're saying. They're moving too fast for me type of thing. And it really slows it down and breaks and shows the power in these words and the power of this mm -hmm. music. Because hip-hop was always one of my favorite genres because I felt it was a platform where you had the most ability to say something with it just on the structure of how it is written. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of rock music is, you know, an eight eight bar bridge and repeat right. type of thing and you have like kind of a repeating theme where you have then guitar solos and the music's more mm -hmm. what's stretching the length of the song as compared to the verses in hip hop but it's also a lot about rhythm too and I, I like my past is, is strictly you know music and so yep. for me I I am like that I, I, I'm a lyricist I like to hear lyrics more than anything but mm -hmm. I do feel that rhythm I'm mm -hmm. used to that and so that's another thing that I really like because that's sort of in the forefront. 
Well, yeah, yeah, and even in the spoken word, you have to have that, that cadence. It's still a it's, very rhythmatic performance, even the without the music. Word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cadence. Yeah. Um, so you're not just a musician, though, Tallbox. No, what I else am. Do you do? Uh, I'm also a social worker. Um, I work at Nottingham High School with uh, kids that are on probation, mm -hmm. kids that have gang affiliations. So. Uh, interesting job it you is. know the good thing about my music is I can be very honest and it's from my true perspective I think that's what sets me aside from a lot of artists a lot of artists feel like they have to fit into this cookie cutter right like this is what I need to be in order to be hip-hop right but what all hip-hop is is truth you know to a to, to a beat but and, your truth. Um, my truth right because that's the only thing that that's the only thing I have is my story otherwise we're just people, you know, people go through the same things. Um, so that social consciousness, and I wouldn't say I'm a conscious rapper. I'm kind of in the middle. Um, I'm a very uh, imperfect man as well. But I don't have a problem talking about that. And I think that could also help people on a level. So, you know, I pride myself in the truth that comes out of my music. And I think the passion that's put into it is how it's received. So Absolutely. That's, I think, what drew me to you when I saw you on the stage. And that's going back to saying, you know, you're magnetic. I always um, listen from the gut, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I can feel when someone else is putting their gut out there. Mm -hmm. and, and I felt like that with you. Awesome. Because you had things to say. So will you always do social work and music or? Um, no, actually. <laughs> uh, well, music, yes. Correct. Um, social work, I will always be connected to the community. Let mm -hmm. me put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, it's extremely important to me, but I want to be rich. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, and I don't like politics, so mm -hmm. that's not for me. Um, but we are transitioning. Me and my mother are uh, transitioning into opening up a restaurant, a local restaurant. Um, it's something. Food is another one of my loves. Um, I love to eat, and I love to eat good food. Mm -hmm. And I think that me and my mother will be able to bring something that Syracuse doesn't have. Um, we're in the process of doing the business plan. And, of course, there's the market analysis. And you have to analyze the competition. Mm -hmm. And you have to, you know, put forth what separates you from the other people. And a lot separates us from Party. different restaurants. Um, so I'm just excited. There's, there's a lot going on. Ian has me on the road all the time and doing shows. Um, I have three projects that I currently have finished and I'm just working on the promotion and the visuals because if you don't have any ears listening, there's no reason to drop music. Correct. Um, yeah. The business so side of music. The business side of music is what I'm focusing on right now. Um, I have a, I have a, I own a studio. It's called Buck City Studios. Um, so I am free to record anytime I want to. I wake up, I record, I feed my daughter, I go record. <laughs> um, and since I produce, I don't need to leave my home to create the music that I'm making. Perfect. So it's been a blessing. And now, sounds from our next episode. And I know that you loved me. And I know that you cared. I wish I could run my fingers through your whole brown hair. And we'll run far away. Hailing from the foothills of the Adirondack Mountains, the Old Main has drawn favorable comparisons to bands such as the Avet Brothers, The Band, 
and Dawes, while retaining a sound and style uniquely their own. That's next time on the Stick to Syracuse podcast. We thank you for listening to Episode 7. Thank you to Daniel Baldwin. Thank you to Ian LaRochelle. And we're thinking of you, Curtis Tallbucks McDowell. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the Stick to Syracuse podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Brent Axe. Until next time, I'll meet you at the Pencan Mall. <laughs>